0: We're looking this morning from Luke chapter 21 verses 25 and following concerning the joy of redemption near. If you have your bulletin outline, you'll notice firstly that there will be convulsions in the heavens, a sign of redemption near. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Undoubtedly, there are other bodies in the heavens, and we give them such names as asteroids, meteors, comets, and so on. But Jesus names the three categories that concern us most, sun, moon, stars. This is important because these other things, asteroids, meteors, and so on, are not always visible everywhere in the various hemispheres of our Earth at one and the same time. But every hemisphere gets to see the sun, the moon, and the stars. What is more, these three categories sun, moon, stars have been the object of worship by idolaters throughout the centuries, and they continue to be objects of worship in our idolatrous world. If you think that only some naked Aborigine in the bush would view such things as objects, these objects as their gods, consider all the Americans who view the position of the stars and their placement within the zodiac as the real power that controls their lives. This is why astrological charts and daily horoscopes are an obsession with so many superstitious people. By the way, the Greek word horoscopes comes from two words, horo, meaning hour, and skopos, meaning to observe, hence to observe the hours. That is, the date of your birth or other indicators of time and space. So that's what they're referring to. You can think about this, since the stars were and are used legitimately, legitimately, I say, to obtain one's geographical position. Remember, the mariners of the past used an instrument called the sextant, whereby they could look at the stars and compare it with the horizon, and they know where they are. They'd have direction for their sailing. So it became a very simple thing, a simple leap of faith, to assume that the stars also controlled one's spiritual destiny or direction. Hence the worship of what are viewed as powerful energy fields in the heavens. Now historically, many cultures worship the sun and the moon and the stars, and many religions Still worship them. Still worship them. Surya, S-U-R-Y-A, was the sun god of Hinduism. Still is. Rides across the sky in a chariot. <coughs> Tonatiuh was the Aztec sun god. Inti was the Inca sun god. Helios, the Greek sun god. Apollos. The Roman sun god, and we named one of our spaceships after that. But, but probably the best known is Ra, the Egyptian sun god, the deity the Egyptians worshipped at the time of Moses and the Exodus. Actually, the Egyptians had different names for their sun god as it related to the sun's position in the sky, Kepri for the rising sun, Atum, for the setting sun, and Ra, for the sun at high noon, at its biggest and brightest, who rode across the sky in a solar bark. That's what their description. Symbols of Ra, and I'm sure you have seen these in Egyptian artwork and so forth, is the all-seeing eye, or disc, atop A falcon-headed man. So it's the idea of over man or sometime a big old eye shining out. Now let us keep in mind that the God of the Bible did battle with the false gods of Egypt, including Ra, in the plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh in the great contest between Moses and him over the releasing of Israel from bondage. Pharaoh was a hard case. He was strong-willed by God's own hand because of his determination not to lose his slave labor. It's actually stated that way in the scripture. His slave labor was building monumental cities for him. You can read two of them in Exodus 1 verse 11. Ramesses was one of them, named after the Pharaoh, of course. And that bondage and that beating and whipping and all of that that we... A read about in terms of the slaves and how they were treated, were the Israelites building these cities for him? Upon their first encounter, Pharaoh said to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5 and verse 2. So that set the stage right there for this. (laughs) We're, We're going to talk about lots of confrontation. Because he's digging in. Moses saying, speaking for God, let my people go. And he says, I don't know the Lord. Who's this that you're talking about? And I will not let them go. Now God had informed Moses that such would be the case before he ever got to Egypt. Here's what he said. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. I like that. It doesn't lay the emphasis, oh, Pharaoh, let them go. (laughs) No, the Lord laid his hand on them and brought them out in spite of Pharaoh. Exodus 7, verse 3 through 5. And verse 14 of that chapter says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. And so began the great contest against the gods of Egypt. You remember the first miracle, the Nile was turned to blood. And that was the beginning of God's belittlement of the power of the Egyptian gods, for they worshipped the Nile as the mother of life. But when we get to the ninth plague, the ninth plague, there were ten. So we get to number nine, here's what we read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Exodus 10, verse 21 through 23. Dee and I experienced this kind of darkness one time in our life. One time in our life. When we visited Penn's Cave in Pennsylvania. Penn's Cave is a huge underground cavern. You have to go down, 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 just to get to the opening. I mean, you're you know, you're driving this winding road and so forth to get down to it. And then when you get down to it... There is this underground lake that is in the cave, so you've got to get in a boat. So we traveled by boat, back, 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 deeper, deeper, deeper into the cave, making turns here, there, and so forth, getting back into the recesses of the cave. Yes, I actually convinced Donna to do that. And as we moved deeper and deeper into the cave, eventually the mouth of the cave disappeared, so that light disappeared. They had it all lit up, of course, with lights. And we could look at the stalactites and all of those kind of things. But then when we got all the way back in there, the guide turned out the lights. The darkness, let me tell you, could be felt. And though I was sitting right next to D. I could not see her. So I raised my hand. I put my hand in front of my eyes and I could not see my fingers. Marvelous as the human eye is, it needs some amount of trace light to see. So we experience for the first and only time what it must be like to be blind. It was disconcerting experience, to say the least. A darkness that you could feel. When God blanketed the sun that day in Egypt, it was an attack on Ra. And it demonstrated to Pharaoh and his people that it was the God of Israel who controlled the illumination of their world. He could even light up the homestead of the Israelites while encapsulating the rest of Egypt in darkness so black So penetrating that it could be felt. And a darkness that black, that close at hand, is suffocating emotionally. No wonder the Egyptians stayed put for three days. Now all, all the plagues of Egypt were aimed at their idol gods as a demonstration that God is one, not many. God is omnipotent. He does whatever He pleases without their permission, without their ability to thwart His will. And at the completion of the tenth plague, the most terrible of all, here's what we read. It's God's summarization. On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Exodus 12, verse 12. And in reflecting on the Exodus, Moses writes later in the book of Numbers, The Israelites set out from Ramesses on the fifteenth day of the first month, The day after Passover they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Numbers 33 verse 3 and 4. In their later history when Israel forsook God and began to worship the gods of the Egyptians you can hardly believe that but they did it. Jeremiah predicted, he, God, will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd wraps his garment around him, so will he wrap Egypt around himself and depart from there unscathed. And There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. Jeremiah 43, verse 12 and 13. This happened a number of times, historically. What is appropriate for our study is that Jesus is indicating that God will again convulse the heavenly bodies which people worship in their idolatry. Verse 26 of our text. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is also the prediction of the prophet Isaiah who writes, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. Isaiah 13, verse 9 through 13. Predicted, this is Isaiah saying, here's what's going to be like in the end days. Now what we need to know here is that this language is not hyperbole. It is not simply shocking symbolism. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 26 of our text. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Let me say, no one faints because of exaggerated speech. But they will faint at convulsive and unpredictable events beyond their knowledge. And here's the important thing, beyond their control. I ask the question: How shook is shaken? <laughs> how dark is darkened? When it comes to the sun, moon, and stars. Well, we read in the Revelation: The fourth angel sounded the trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also. A third of the night, obviously, since the moon reflects the sun's rays. Revelation 8, verse 12. How will this happen? Well, remember what we read about the plagues in Egypt? All Egypt was affected by the penetrating darkness that God sent upon the land, except the province of Goshen, which was the suburb where the Israelites lived. They had light when Egypt, proper, did not have any light. say, I don't know how that could happen. Oh, really? On May 18th, 1980, the top of Mount St. Helens blew off in a vast pyroclastic explosion that went into the atmosphere 80,000 feet. Historylink.org writes... An ash plume roared out of the top of the mountain and within 15 minutes reached a height of 15 miles above the mountain. Prevailing winds blew dense clouds of black ash to the east that blocked the sun and turned day into total darkness over the land that it crossed. And Brethren, this is just one volcano in one state, Washington, yet the ash cloud it produced blocked the light of the sun in regions 1,000 miles away. That's a third across, a third, here we go again with the thirds, a third across the United States. Ezekiel tells of a repeat of God's judgment on Egypt, saying, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light, obviously, since the moon is reflective. All the shining lights, still reading scripture, all the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring about your destruction among the nations, among lands that you have not known. I will cause many peoples to be appalled at you, and their kings will shudder with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. On the day of your downfall, each of them will tremble every moment for his life. Ezekiel 32 verses 7 through 10 what then my people will it be like when one third of the light emitting orbs of the heavens are turned dark in the judgment of the day of the Lord Revelation 8 verse 12 there's billions of stars out there billions and billions of stars a third just take a third of them switch them off a third of the sun, third of the moon's reflective. You can be sure people are going to go. What's going on? But that's not all. Not only there will there be convulsions in the sky, but there will be secondly convulsions on earth, two areas. Firstly, in the seas. Look at verse twenty-five, the latter part. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. God declared to Israel, For I am the Lord your God, who churns up the sea, so that its waves roar. I am the Lord Almighty, is His name. Isaiah 51 verse 15. I do that. Now I know the scientists have an explanation. Well, it's the wind, it's movement, and it's on. Yeah, but who controls all of that? Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is His name. Jeremiah 31, verse 35. And the little prophet Amos wrote this. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in its in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and then sinks like the river of Egypt. Amos 9 verse 5. A few weeks ago I talked about the frequency of earthquakes since that is one of the signs of Christ's return. Now we learn that the sea will have its day of dread as well. Our text says the roaring, the tossing of the sea. Okay, well, doesn't it do that? All the time, roar and toss, the waves toss. Well, obviously he's talking about something extraordinary here that the sea is doing. So I went on the tsunami warning system site. Maybe didn't even know there was such a site, but there is. Here's what I discovered. This is phenomenal. I discovered that there were but nine, nine recorded, that's the operative word, nine recorded tsunamis from 1628 before Christ, B.C., to March of 1933 A.D., after Christ, a total of 3,561 years. So nine tsunamis in 3,561 years. That works out to one tsunami every 396 years, or... 0.0025% per year. Minuscule, we would say. Nothing to fret about. Okay, but from 1946, some of you were born in 1946, from 1946 through February last month, 2013, there have been 14 tsunamis in 67 years or one on average every five years and, get this, an 8,268% increase in tsunamis. Water catastrophes since 1628. So where'd you come up with those figures? Well, I have two brother-in-laws that are accountants, so I put them to work uh, coming up with the math, since I'm not very good at math, and they both come up with the same figures. The Bible identifies God as setting boundaries for the sea. We don't normally think about this. When Job, in arrogant protest against God's dealings with him, said... I want a hearing before God. I'm going to ask him some questions and I'm going to get me some answers. God demonstrated how little Job knew by questioning him. And here's what he said. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fix limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, This far you may come, and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Job 38, verse 8 through 11. A a fixed limit? Did I read that right? Barred doors, a border, with a prohibition halt? All that for the sea? Really? Really? Yeah, indeed. But in times of judgment, this same God can and does shake the earth, and the waves roar up. And they come upon the shores, past their previous boundaries to such a degree that many lose their lives, and much destruction and property loss occur. The worst tsunami on record occurred in Sumatra. Indonesia, December 26, 2004, emerging from a 9.1 earthquake, resulting in a 164 foot tall wave. Can you think about that? That's 16 stories high coming on shore and crashing in land more than three miles. It contributed to water heights in the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Antarctica. Created an estimated $10 billion worth of damage occurred, but here's the worst. 230,000 people lost their lives in that one storm. Again I ask, what will it be like at the roaring and the tossing of the sea? Verse 25, in the day of Jesus' return. But secondly, the sea is not the only entity experiencing convulsing. It's going to occur in the earth too. We've already taught on the increase of earthquakes in a previous study, but there's more. God speaking through Jeremiah gives a summary of the extent of judgment on Jerusalem in the day of its destruction and a foretaste of things to come. And here's what he says. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked. And the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and I will not turn back. Jeremiah four, twenty-two through 28. I'm a history buff. I like... Um, I like history. I have in my library uh, some videos of uh, World War II, and particularly the fall of Hitler in the last days in Berlin. And the Allies took to that city and bombed it and bombed it and bombed it and bombed it. And when they showed the pictures of Berlin after those bombings, it was more than a ghost town. It was just rubble everywhere. The buildings were all flat. When I read a text like this, that the mountains were leveled at the God shaking the earth, it's believable. Now Hosea states the reason for all this. We say, well, boy, this is a lot of you know, God really must be ticked off at people to do something like this. Well, Hosea writes this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Here's the charge. There is no faithfulness. That's to him. No love. Boy, aren't we living in a loveless age, our age. Just heard this week where a nurse in a um, nursing facility left a person die because she refused, 911 operator talking to her, she refused to do CPR on the 87-year-old woman. And the operator said, isn't there anyone there? Oh, it's against our policy. Isn't there anyone there willing to not let this woman die? And the answer came back, not at this time. And she died. Yeah. Loveless age. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed, because of this. The land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are dying. Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3. God has a reason for what He does, you know. He's not capricious. He's not just, oh, let's see, I think I'll go down and wipe out this city, that city. No, He has a reason. And the reason is all of the wickedness like it was in the days of Noah. What is this? If not a repeat of God's curse on creation, it was because of Adam and Eve's sin that we read, cursed is the ground because of you. That's why it's cursed. Genesis 3 verse 17. Nahum the prophet reminds us how God uses the things of nature in judgment. And I found this to be a very interesting text. It says there, the Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now notice what he says here in these next verses. His way, God's way, is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel, the mountains, wither in the blossoms of Lebanon and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at the presence, at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good and a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. am 1 verse 3 through 7. We don't normally read the prophet Nahum, but here's something good to read. But what it does is it explains how God uses nature, uses creation to bring about the judgment things. He doesn't have to uh, invent something new. He just takes what's there and uses it in a way not seen before. Habakkuk gives this vision. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hands where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 6. I tell you what, there's no God except this God. And this God is to be feared. He's to be loved and obeyed. Or be feared. The Apostle John describes the final landscape at the coming of Christ, and here's what he writes. Then there came flashings of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could found. Revelation 16 verses 18 through 20. Now I want to tell you that's an earthquake. That's an earthquake. That's God grabbing the earth and shaking it so hard so violently that the city's just they just collapse. The mountains disappear. Now, what then is the reaction of people to the coming of Christ? It's in our text. First reaction, verse 25 and 26, is they are terror-stricken observers and recipients. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken, including us, as we just read. You know, one would have to be an utter fool or an imbecile not to be afraid for life and limb at the onslaught of such horrific upheaval in the creation. Men get scared just on the regular earthquakes that we have in our nation. There's a lot of talk these days about climate change and global warming and the melting of the glacier ice pack and of late about asteroids and meteors and comets passing too close for comfort in Earth's atmosphere. And so environmentalists are pushing hard to reduce carbon emissions, which they hope will reduce uh, heat and warmth and keep the ice pack from melting and all of those things. And you hear about that all the time. What you might not have heard about is this. In 2005, the Congress, our Congress, passed what they call the NASA, N-A-S-A, Authorization Act. The NASA Authorization Act, which reads in part, quote, The U.S. Congress has declared that the general welfare and security of the United States require that the unique competence of NASA be directed to detecting, tracking, cataloging, and characterizing near-Earth asteroids and comets in order to provide warning and mitigation of the potential hazard of such near-Earth objects to the Earth. End quote. So we'll form, we'll give NASA, we're not going to shoot rockets anymore, we got to go up with the Russian space guys, but we'll give NASA a new job, and here's the new job it's going to have. It will. De- it's got to look for comets and asteroids and things like that and then discover ways of mitigating or stopping them from whacking us, these near-Earth objects. To do this, a program known as Linear operates in New Mexico right now with two one-meter telescopes and one-half meter. Another program called Space Watch uses a 90-meter telescope at the Kitt Peak Observatory in Arizona, and it was updated with... Um, automatic pointing, imaging, and analysis equipment to search the skies for these intruders. And that was set up in 1980. Well, okay, so they're going to watch the skies and see, yeah, there's an asteroid coming at us. Yeah, there's a meteor coming at us. But they they also came up with a whole plan of mitigation. How are we going to stop that asteroid? Here's what they come up with. We'll use nuclear pulse propulsion. MIT worked on this pilot program in 1967. A nuclear blast towards the asteroid or whatever, pulse it away. Kinetic impact will crash a spacecraft into the asteroid to knock it off course. So it won't hit the Earth. That's called kinetic because you're actually doing something with an object. Ion beam. beam, Ion beam, I O N, Ion beam propulsion being worked on by the University of Madrid to slowly push NEOs, near Earth orbit structures, off course. Of course, so they won't hit us know what this is? This is billions and billions of dollars wasted on futility. When the sun is shaded, and thus its warmth and light reduced by one-third... When, as Isaiah predicted, all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll, all the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Isaiah 34, verse 4. When great and powerful earthquakes reduce the mountains to plains and churn the sea to produce mammoth destructive tsunamis, it's ludicrous to think that an energy pulse from a laser or a nuclear blast from a rocket will divert any of this. Rather, the reaction of idolatrous humanity will be this. Then the kings of the earth, those guys that have the money, the princes, the generals, there's your military the rich, the mighty, those that have money, every slave, every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. Well, I'm happy to report to you this morning that there is one group of people that will stand. And they're in our text too. Verse 27 and 28. At that time... They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, you believers. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see in these words, joy and anticipation. Not dread, not mountains fall on us. ah, Yo, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. Come. There's joy. There's anticipation. Final climax is coming. The end of this wicked world. The believers who were martyred for their faith in years past preferred death over damnation. And that same faith in God relieves the fears of God's people on Judgment Day. How so? Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. When did that happen? And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13. That's when it happened. So what is our faith? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians four, verse one. How can we be at peace when such turmoil and death and dying is found everywhere? The Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will ever be with the Lord. Amen. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. Say, oh wait a minute, though! I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. What about God's judgment of sin? We've read that in all those prophecies. Yeah, well read this too, 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live, and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. How do I obtain the forgiveness of Jesus' cross work? Answer, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3 verse 16. What does that mean for me on the day of judgment when the Bible warns for that great day of their wrath has come? And who can stand? Revelation 6 verse 17 Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. We're in a different category. All right, Pastor. Pastor, how do I know that all that you say is going to come true? Verse 33 of our text. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, my promises will never pass away. Can you not hear the plea of God in Ezekiel's message? Who preached in his day. Say to them, Ezekiel, say to them. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. That's God's message to the world today. While there's yet time. Why, why will you perish? And I say, why indeed? Why indeed? It's only because our hearts are stubborn and hard like that of Pharaoh that the judgment of God comes upon us. May the Lord melt us now and mold us now, granting us the faith we don't have and the repentance we don't want. May the Lord do that for you this morning if you're outside of His grace. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you that redemption is near when we see all these events. Our redemption is drawing near when we see all these events. We're just starting to see these things, Lord. But it is a sign that things are being placed, things are being put in motion. According to the prophecies of the Old Testament and all of your own words that we have been studying here in Luke 21. I pray for any unbeliever this morning that you'd grant them faith, turn their hearts away from their sin, that repentance that they need. Intellectually, they're trying to figure it all out. No, no, no. They don't need intellect, they need faith. The writer of Hebrews says it's faith that pleases God. And Paul says that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's because our wisdom makes us arrogant. And faith makes us humble. And God will have no arrogance before him. He is God, he alone is God, and we're not God. Lord, bless the truth of your word. Prepare our hearts for the coming day. We Christians rejoice in this. We anticipate it. It's What we've longed for forever. (laughs) Maybe we'll die before we see this, but we're still going to be part of the whole outcome. And I'm praying for those that are yet lost in sin, still arguing with God, still having no time to believe, still trying to figure Him out and analyze Him. Lord, grant them faith. Give them belief. We pray these things for your glory first and foremost, where you are glorified when people believe. And you're pleased when people believe. If we can please you, Lord, we are safe. Bless the truth of your word. Thank you for Jesus who took the pain and the penalty of our sin and grants to us forgiveness for the asking. Amen.